0: Welcome to the Sonoma Collective Podcast. We are a faith family practicing the way of Jesus together in beautiful Sonoma, California. If you'd like to learn more about Sonoma Collective, its ministries, or how you can support us financially, visit sonomacollective.com. Perhaps you've heard of this common objection to Christianity or a church or even the invitation to church, and that no, I couldn't possibly do that because it's full of hypocrites. Now, the witty and a bit snarky retort to that would be, Exactly, You've, you'll fit right in. Now, while the statement is a true statement, it's definitely not helpful, at least if your goal is to get that person to come to church, uh, to be interested in the things of Christ, or most importantly, to pursue Jesus. But what about that statement? It's full of hypocrites. Is it true? Now, our instincts, of course, are to believe better of ourselves than we actually are. So are we hypocrites? Well, if we're honest, yes. At times, we can pretend to be what we're not. However, if we dig a bit deeper, we're not just hypocrites, but our condition is actually even worse. Our last message, we started talking about what the culture of Sonoma Collective is or what we're aspiring to. Uh, Last week, we talked about what it means to slow down, to embrace a slowed down spirituality, that if we're going too fast for God, then we're doing too many things either for Him, uh, but we're we're not focusing on being with Him, and our being is way more important than our doing. Today, uh, we're going to talk about what it means to have integrity in leadership, to have an integrated life, or more to the point, what does it mean to live into wholeness? And so, uh, if you have your Bibles, we're in Acts chapter 5, uh, we'll read the first 11 verses here. This story perhaps you've heard before, um, but this talks about two individuals and the very beginnings of the church of Jesus. It says in, in, chapter one, in verse 1 of chapter 5 in Acts, But a man named Ananias, with his wife Sapphira, sold a piece of property. However, he kept back part of the proceeds with his wife's knowledge and brought a portion of it and laid it at the apostles' feet. Ananias, Peter asked, Why has Satan filled your heart to lie to the Holy Spirit and keep back part of the proceeds of the land? Wasn't it yours while you possessed it? And after it was sold, wasn't it at your disposal? Why is it that you planned this thing in your heart? You have not lied to people, but to God. When he heard these words, Ananias dropped dead, and a great fear came on all who heard. The young men got up, wrapped his body, carried him out, and buried him. About three hours later, his wife came in, not knowing what had happened. Tell me, Peter asked her, Did you sell the land for this price? Yes, she said, for that price. Then Peter said to her, Why did you agree to test the spirit of the Lord? Look, the feet of those who have buried your husband are at the door, and they will carry you out. Verse 10. Instantly she dropped dead at his feet. When the young men came in, they found her dead, carried her out, and buried her beside her husband. Then great fear came on the whole church and all who heard these things. That was a pretty intense story. Uh, uh, but a little context is helpful here uh, in, in Acts. This is written by Luke. And prior to this, and right after this, he's talking about and describing the beginnings of the church and the ideal church. And we see earlier at the end of chapter 4 that they shared all things in common the church, uh, that there was great power, that they were giving testimony, effective testimony about the resurrection of the Lord Jesus. And there's a great grace that was on them all. And there, no one was going with in need because they were all... Selling possessions and sharing with one another is great commonality, and then right after the passage that we just read, we see uh, Luke describing the signs and wonders that was accompanying the uh, and working in and through the church at this time. So really interesting that this story that we have, which clearly is a negative story by most accounts, is sandwiched between these two really positive descriptions of the early church. That's important as we as we start to understand this a bit. And the two characters that we really focus in on here, we see Ananias and Sapphira and. Of course, names are meaningful, especially uh, in, in he, ancient Hebrew and, and in Greek. And so Ananias, the the man in this story, his name actually means God is gracious. Of course, there's a, a mild irony there, right? And and seemingly on the surface, it doesn't seem like God was very gracious to him. And then his wife Sapphira, and her name, is translated as beautiful. Uh, there are a couple themes that we could pull out of this. A couple we'll just touch on really quickly. We don't have time to really dive into. The first is we see that... Uh, there's equal treatment of men and women in the early church. Um, In both his gospel and in the Acts uh, that we're reading from Luke, he paired women with men, particularly when it came to context of witness, sharing testimony, as well as discipleship. And, And note the emphasis on the personal responsibility and discipleship that applies to all disciples, female as well as male. This would have been particularly noteworthy. We lose some of this in our modern context, but in the Jewish culture of the day, the early Jerusalem church, this would have been really particularly noteworthy because a woman's religious status was largely tied up with her father or husband and depended on his faithful execution of the religious responsibility. But here we see Luke is reminding us once again that Jesus empowers women in ministry. He's not repressing them. The second thing we see here clearly is that our relationship with material things marks us. Now, if this incident, the story makes you uncomfortable, that's good. It should, on on many levels. Um, For one, it deals with with money. Uh, Luke, who uh, as a profession was a physician, he probably had personal knowledge of the pitfalls of wealth. Um, Of all the gospel writers, he gives actually the strongest treatment of the dangers of money and our relationship to it. Of course, ultimately, we see the temptations of money. They ensnared Judas, one of the 12 uh, disciples of Jesus, um, the rich young man out of luke 18 and the rich fool from luke 12. and so the same quest for material security it trapped ananias and sapphira and not only was it their undoing but it also threatened the church and so then just like it is now the mark of any christian fellowship any community of followers of jesus any church that says they follow jesus uh, is marked by their relationship uh, the individual members to money as well as to the material goods And so, ultimately, we see that this is where real heart and mind are revealed as we start to get into issues of money. The third thing we're going to really dive into and unpack in this message is this idea of hypocrisy or what I would call uh, duplicity. Now, remember, right from the beginning, one of the key moments in this story, verse 2, it says, uh, However, he, meaning Ananias, kept back part of the proceeds. The word here, the verb used is, now, this Greek word it is translated best as meaning to pilfer, to purloin, or to embezzle, right? Now, of course, it's impossible to embezzle one's own funds. Like, you can't embezzle yourself, right? Uh, but you can only embezzle something that belongs to someone else, another person. And so in this case, the uh, goods here, the money, the proceeds from the sale of the property, rightfully belong to the common Christian fund, or more to the point, to God. And it's interesting. This same word is only is one of the time um, we see it in Scripture, and it comes to us from the Septuagint. This is the Greek translation of the Old Testament. And it's from a story uh, out of the book of Joshua where they had just uh, conquered Jericho, the first fortified city when, when Israel was going into the Promised Land after being in the desert, the wilderness, for 40 years. And God was very clear, don't take any of the goods from this conquest. There'll be plenty for you to come. But there's a man named Achan, and he actually, it says he um, took some of the, the, the booty, if you will, he took some of the, the prize from the, the, nation, or the city they just took over. And this was supposed to be devoted or set aside for God for sacred use. And yet Achan took it for himself. And it was a tragic consequence ultimately for him and his family and those close to him. Uh, similarly, uh, we have Ananias and Sapphira. They pledged hourly that all the proceeds were being given to the church, and yet they kept some secretly or inwardly for themselves. You see, their hearts were divided, right? They they had one foot in the community, and the other was still groping for a toehold on the worldly security of earthly possessions. So the question we go back to that we started with, which was, were they hypocrites, right? Like many claim that all Christians are today, are are they hypocrites? Well, the language matters here, so we important we understand what we mean when we say these words so hypocrisy uh, usually involves a contradiction between a person's supposed principles beliefs or character and who they really are how they behave another definition says hypocrisy is a feigning or pretending to be what one is not or to believe what one does not behavior that contradicts what one claims to believe or feel so by those definitions on one level yes they were pretending Ananias to Sapphira to be people who gave everything when they had actually held some back Does that mean, however, that they didn't believe in being generous and sharing their possessions with their faith community? Well, I don't think so. I mean, they likely wouldn't have sold their property in the first place or given anything if they didn't believe in being generous and supporting their faith community. And so hypocrisy, as it stands, is really too simplistic of a diagnosis. And this leads us to the word mentioned earlier, this idea of duplicity or being duplicitous. And so as the, as the wording implies, this idea of doubleness is at the core when it comes to the definition. This word duplicity, it comes from the Latin word meaning double or twofold. And its original meaning in English has to do with the kind of deception in which you intentionally hide your true feelings or intentions behind false words or actions. So if you're being duplicitous, there are two use, the one you're showing and the one you're hiding. And, and this is key to the idea of duplicity. You're hiding that you in order to make people believe something that's not true. Uh, Reminds me of a story. Uh, When I was um, back in San Diego and and leading a a community, a small group, uh, there was one of the guys in our group, his name is Alex, and uh, he would talk week after week about how he was an angry driver, but a proud angry driver. Like He he didn't seem uh, remorseful or anyway any way regretful of the fact that he was angry. He would often complain about... um, people's driving and um, he would describe how would you know he'd be angry all day and even even to the point where he'd come home at the end of the day and to his wife and and share some of his his frustration and anger and so for you know a few weeks listened to this and you know I realized that wow this maybe I can help Alex because I actually was someone who had at least I believed been a recovered uh, former angry driver and um you know I remember talking to Alex and I said to him at one point you know Alex and I'd said lots of things that didn't seem to really impact him over the weeks of the conversation but I said something to him I think finally got through to him I said you know Alex the the saddest part about when you get so angry and yell at um, those drivers is that one they have no idea who you are or that you are angry with them Um, the the worst part is that as you continue to be angry the rest of the day uh, that person that you're angry with they actually have control over you and they don't even know it they're controlling your emotions and your mental state and even the, the coworkers that you work with, and yet they don't even know you exist. And it looked like a, a light bulb finally kind of went off for him, just the clarity in his eyes. He says, wow, I never really thought of it like that. Well, fast forward, uh, it was like a week or so later, and um, Chris and I were driving somewhere, and it was one of those situations where like three lanes was, tr- was coming into two, would come into one. And we were driving, and I saw this guy coming out of the, my on the right-hand side, the lane that was going to be ending, and he was kind of really fast. I thought, oh, gosh, he's, hopefully he's going to slow down. But I, I assume, based on speed and the way the traffic was going to go, he's just going to, like, slide in behind me. Well, he, he thought he would get one more car kind of behind him, and so he tried to go in front of me, uh, and, he, and he made it, but he came over so fast, it literally I had to slam on the brakes um, and almost swerve sort of into the oncoming traffic. And and I just, in that instant, just blurted out, you idiot, <laughs> Of course, the car was silent and um, just waiting for Krista to say something, and she did. And she says, Weren't you just the other day telling Alex how being angry is such a not good use of energy and emotion? (laughs) And I was thought, Oh, you know, like, of course, last thing I want to hear right now, but yes, you're absolutely correct. Now, why did I share that story? Well, did i truly believe it was better to not be an angry driver absolutely yes of course i'd put in a lot of work uh, or a long period of time to, to kind of get to my to get to where i was at that point did i think it was for to get angry rather than exercise grace and compassion absolutely of course i had experienced the benefits of my life well before encouraging and exhorting alex to do likewise and yet there was another part of me That wasn't okay when other drivers didn't follow the rules of the road, either through carelessness or selfish gain. And so when tested, as I was in that moment, this part of me was more than happy to emerge. Now, can you relate? Maybe not the angry driver syndrome, at least I hope not. Um, But similarly, when you have two contradicting thoughts, Uh, there's a term for this in psychology, it's called cognitive dissonance. And this is a term for the state of discomfort felt when two or more modes of thought contradict each other. Uh, the clashing cognitions may include ideas or beliefs or, or the knowledge that one has behaved in a certain way. Now, it sounds a bit like hypocrisy, but there is a nuanced difference. Hypocrisy is pretending to be what one is not or to believe what one does not. Uh, let's say you've been um, exercising like uh, like a professional athlete, at least your version, right? You're paying for virtual training sessions, you're jogging through your neighborhood, you're conquering any hiking trail within a five mile radius, you're eating healthy, all in the, in the quest to, to drop you know 10, 15 pounds, maybe that you're still kind of carrying from, from pandemic season. And then you go food shopping and you spot a tub of edible cookie dough, which you put into your cart thinking you only have just one spoonful here and there. Even though you buy it, you know you shouldn't have because, well, you've just sabotaged yourself and that's the moment when the discomfort the guilt and the shame start to settle in the cognitive dissonance is is, is showing itself you see it's that unpleasant mental state that may result if someone really does have certain belief but thinks or acts in a way that contradicts them uh, here, here are just a f- other few examples um, impulse shopping right buying what we don't actually need in order to feel good and cognitive dissonance usually Results in rationalizing or justifying that it was a good deal or a necessary purchase or a, you know, only once once a year annual sale kind of thing. Um, another one is in being honest, right? I, most people, I think, would agree that being honest is a good virtue. It's a good moral to standard to to subscribe to, and yet there are times when we lie to protect ourselves from embarrassment or pain. And when we do, typically we feel later convicted that we should have been honest, but we still don't tell the truth. We don't circle back and sort of clear the air as it were. There's that, that feeling of dissonance happening. Another situation, cognitive dissonance would be peer pressure, right? A friend does something unethical, maybe they cheat or steal, but we don't say anything for fear of losing the relationship, right? Keeping a a false piece, not true, but a false piece. And so cognitive dissonance is between that faithfulness to the person and then doing what we believe to be is right. Uh, I love how uh, Blaise Pascal puts it. He's a French mathematician, physicist, inventor, philosopher, writer, and Catholic theologian. He says this, We are only falsehood, duplicity, contradiction. We both conceal and disguise ourselves from ourselves. So well said. Now, of course, there are some... Side effects, uh, negative side effects from this mental discomfort. Ways that you might know you're experiencing cognitive dissonance. Things like stress, anxiety, confusion, guilt, shame. Uh, anyone feel any of these in the past few years or months? Last few hours, perhaps? Now, obviously, it's not saying that if you, that cognitive dissonance is the, is the root cause of all those things. But there are, are some indicators that perhaps you are suffering from some dissonance in your mind. Now, of course, none of those things I just mentioned are from God, but rather God wants us to live in what's called shalom, right? It's a Hebrew word that often is translated peace, but probably more accurately is described as completeness or wholeness. There are some ways that we deal with cognitive dissonance. There are some coping strategies, um, some of which are include denial, right? Uh, like, oh, you know, like those health warnings about, you know, smoking too much or Sitting down too long or eating overeating, those are just exaggerated. Those aren't really that bad for me, right? We deny the things so we don't have to have that dissonance, or we hide, right? We stay away from people or situations that remind us of our conflicting beliefs, right? Someone who also is like, it's like almost like when you see them, you feel that conviction, like, ah, I'm supposed to do that thing or that thing I have, I I said I was going to change and I haven't. I see that person reminds me. Another way we deal with uh, cognitive dissonance is we rationalize, right? Uh, We might be streaming shows while working and we we justify that by saying that we're getting more work done than other people in our office or you read an article that says productivity is increased with frequent breaks so you maybe now are actually more productive by watching Netflix in between your work sessions. Another way we uh, get around this or cope with this is we avoid Uh, things. Avoidance is a common way to deal with cognitive dissonance. And so what often happens is we limit ourselves, our exposure to new information that doesn't align with our existing beliefs. And this, of course, leads to a phenomenon called confirmation bias. And this is what social media algorithms are designed to do. It's the very thing that they are designed to do. It's one of the many reasons why social media can be so damaging, so polarizing, is because it just continues to feed us things that we seem to like. And so we just keep getting reaffirmed the, the beliefs that we have versus ever being exposed to any conflicting ideas or beliefs. We also can compartmentalize. And so we create these segregations, these walls within our minds to separate the conflicting thoughts or beliefs. Uh, often childhood abuse or trauma victims do this as a coping strategy because they're, again, mentally haven't fully developed or know how to deal with these things, don't have the kind of coping strategies, perhaps uh, as mature adults, and so as a survival tactic, they'll do this. And of course, this can lead to even further dissonance or even multiple or split personalities. And, and of course, this compartmentalization is often present when people are having affairs where they can just completely separate almost two lives and what they believe to be faithfulness as a good virtue, but then personal fulfillment, satisfaction on the other hand. What's interesting about cognitive dissonance is that the mental discomfort is only experienced when we're aware that there's an inconsistency. Think about that. So unless we're aware of it, we don't actually feel the discomfort. So if we go back to the strategies of denial and hiding, rationalizing, avoiding, and compartmentalizing, you can see the danger with these, right? Because in the end, all of these tactics just help us to repeat the behaviors, which we don't really agree with at our core anyway. And so when, when we allow cognitive dissonance to go unaddressed, it can not only cause angst and discomfort, but it can lead to impaired decision-making, uh, it can lower our self-awareness and even greater psychological problems if left unchecked. In, in essence, what's happening is we're drifting further and further from our true selves. Of course, beyond just mental problems, cognitive dissonance can lead to spiritual problems. Uh, back to our text, verse 3, right after um, uh, Peter says to him, uh, Ananias, why has Satan filled your heart? To lie to the Holy Spirit and keep back part of the proceeds of the land. So interesting, right? What Peter calls him out. He says, look, you held back part of, the, part of the proceeds. Look what's happened. You've allowed Satan to fill your heart. You see, Ananias and Sapphira, their duplicity gave Satan an opening. Now, we don't know if the filling came from believing the lie to hold back some of the prophet or if an opening was created when they acted out their duplicitous plan. But either way, Satan came in. And all this had happened because Ananias had allowed the archenemy of the spirit of God, Satan, to enter his heart. Satan, quote, filled Ananias' heart, interestingly, just as he had Judas's. This is coming to us from the Gospel according to Luke. When Judas betrayed Jesus, it said that Satan filled his heart. Same language, same, same words used. You see, like Judas, Ananias was also motivated by money, but in the filling of the heart of one of his members, Satan had now entered for the first time into this young christian community as well and so this course then brings us to the greater impact of ananias and sapphira's duplicitous behavior and that is that it impacted the entire community we're never again the live of, of secular individualism is that we're alone we're autonomous but we're never alone everything we do impacts others the things that others do impacts us and so we we see that right before this, remember the context that there was great descriptions of this, uh, you know, ideal and early church. It says in Acts chapter four, verse 32, that the community was of one heart and one mind. There was tremendous unity and spiritual unity that was there. And it was because they weren't claiming their possessions as their own. They were sharing everything. And this allowed this great spiritual unity. There was community, um, of the Holy spirit and, They had put their trust in God, in the spirit of God, and and in that they had found their identity and they had found their security far beyond what they could expect from worldly possessions. And so to lie with regard to the sharing was to deny the unity of the community and then thereby denying the spirit of God that had been the foundation of that unity. And so that's why Peter accuses Ananias of lying to the spirit. Right? And, the, and the Greek expression is even stronger. It's that he belied. We don't use that word often in our modern English, but belied, meaning he falsified the spirit. And so, in effect, his action was a denial, a falsification of the spirit's presence in the community. Now, you can see from that perspective how much of an affront this was to God. Remember, Ananias and Sapphira, they had voluntarily pledged the money, but in lying about the proceeds, they had broken a sacred trust. And ultimately, they had lied to God not that they had hadn't betrayed the community they had and it's not that they hadn't lied to the spirit that they had also done but rather to betray the community is to lie to the spirit that fills that community and to falsify the spirit of god is of course an affront to god himself and and that's a sobering reality and question we have to ask is have we likewise through our own hypocrisy and duplicity denied the holy spirit's presence in our faith community well, you might be saying, well, what's the big deal with denying the Holy Spirit? I mean, maybe on the surface it seems obvious, but why? Why is it so detrimental to deny the Holy Spirit? Well, we, we can't forget that the Holy Spirit is the power behind the church and its witness. Uh, twice we're told in this section of scripture that great fear sees the entire church and all who heard about these events. Same, same sentence is repeated twice. This is not by chance. It's the whole point of the story that the church is a holy body, the realm of the spirit. And by the power of the spiritual presence in its midst, this young community worked miracles, witnessed fearlessly, and was blessed with incredible growth. And of course, the spirit was the power behind its unity, and its unity was the power behind its witness. But obviously, just as with God, there is both justice and mercy, so with the spirit, there's also an underside to his blessing. There's his judgment. And this, of course, is what Ananias and Sapphira experienced. The Spirit of God is not to be taken lightly. As the Spirit of God, he must always be viewed with fear and in the best sense of that word with reverent awe and respect. Again, it's it's worth noting that this is the first time in all scripture that the word church or ecclesia occurs in, in Acts. And this denotes that the people of God gathered as a religious community. And I don't think it's by accident that it occurs in the context of this story. See, the church can only thrive as the people of God if it lives with the total trust of all its members. Where there is that unity of trust, that oneness of heart and mind, the church flourishes in the power of the Spirit. But where there's duplicity and distrust, then ultimately its witness fails. We're no different than any other group that's gathering together. Now, this seems like a sort of sad state of affairs. So the question then is, is the church doomed to fail? I mean, after all, it's made up of you and me, and we are both full of hypocrisy and duplicity and our own cognitive dissonance that we work through. But we should remember that you and I are in good company. We've got some great uh, biblical examples in David we see in both Psalm 51 and 139. Uh, We see it in in the the apostles, the the disciples, right? They're like, we're going to die for you, Jesus. And then when he's arrested, the first sign of trouble, they run from him. We see him in Paul, the apostle, he says this in Rome, Romans chapter seven, probably most famously, you know, he it's this passage where he's like, why do I do what I don't want to do? And then I do what I don't want to do. And he says it like back and forth in, in many different ways. He's just like, he's really putting his finger on the pulse of this issue. It's like, man, I know what I'm supposed to do and what I want to do, but I don't even do those things. I do the things that I'm, I don't want to do. Now, the, fortunately, we are given the solution in scripture um, that if duplicity of, is, is this human root problem. Um, David, in Psalm 51, he gives us a clue. He says this, he says, "...against you, you alone, speaking to God, I have sinned and done this evil in your sight. So you are right when you pass sentence. You are blameless when you judge. Indeed, I was guilty when I was born. I was sinful when my mother conceived me. Surely you desire integrity in the inner self, and you teach me wisdom deep within." So if dissonance is the illness, then integration or integrity is the cure. Now, you can go outside of scripture to find um, alignment with this. Leaders in business and culture all agree. Uh, Warren Buffett, you've probably heard his name before, one of the more famous investors in our modern era. He says this, you're looking for three things generally in a person, intelligence, energy, and integrity. And if you don't have the last one, don't even bother with the first two. Uh, Dwight Eisenhower, one of our former presidents, he said this, The supreme quality for leadership is unquestionable integrity. Without it, no real success is possible, no matter whether it is on a section gang, a football field, in an army, or in an office. Our most popular definition of integrity, you probably heard this before, is doing the right thing even when no one is watching. It's been attributed to a lot of different people, but the origin ultimately is unknown. Uh, while seemingly true on the surface, it sounds right, Um, As we've now discovered, though, as we looked a little bit deeper and what it means to be duplicitous and cognitive dissonance, the fact is someone is always watching. You're never alone. Now, you could say that someone is God. Yes, of course, God is always present. He's everywhere always. But the person that I'm actually referring to that's actually watching, that someone is us, ourselves. You see, we're not fooling anybody. We're not fooling God. We're certainly not fooling ourselves. Our minds have far greater capacity for that. Um, Now, one way to understand integrity as defined is strength or wholeness. Consider, for example, um, the aerospace business. Integrity is a crucial component to the manufacture of aircraft, right? Weakness anywhere in a structure of an aircraft cannot be tolerated, right? There's no margin for error. Uh, The entire structure must be sound. There can be no weakness in the outer skin of the aircraft, no weakness in the bolts, the framework, or the engine. To accomplish its purpose, an aircraft requires complete integrity. And are we not like the aircraft? Can we really fulfill the job for which we were designed if we lack integrity in any part of our structure? You, You may have heard this many times before. Like, Who cares what they do in their private life? As long as they perform well, then we're happy with them. In fact, we'll give them awards or some variation of that saying. Basically that represents this tendency to compartmentalize our life into boxes. Like what you do at work, what you do in public, what you do at home with family, what you do alone, like separating all those things. Now the urge is strong to keep them all separate and assume they have nothing to do with each other. But the way you and I were made is quite the opposite. We were made as integrated persons. When something happens in one part of our life, it affects the others. What you do in private will influence what you do at work. Character will always affect performance. You can't separate the two. God has not made you in sections. He made you whole. So when you try to compartmentalize yourself or let others do it to you, you are allowing yourself to become something less than God intended for you. We are to walk with him in wholeness. And remember, at the core of this understanding of what it means to sin or miss the mark, all sins are relational in nature. All sin impacts you, it impacts others, and certainly it impacts our relationship with God. And of course, this matters because we are called to be a holy or set-apart community. The church, when it is the church, is a holy community. And not holy as imperfect. Again, holy as set-apart. It's going to look different. It's going to be very counter to the world around us. The temple of the Holy Spirit rests within us. So disunity, duplicity, and hypocrisy will always belie or falsify the spirit and hinder his work if the church is to have genuine spiritual power in our life and in our witness it must be an environment for the spirit of god and must be devoted to maintaining the sanctity and the purity of that space and so we say and we believe that we want personal renewal we want to become sanctified to look more like jesus in all aspects of our life and we want community revival to see the kingdom of god break out to where people are living the fulfilled life uh, that god has offered to us through his son jesus of course if that's the case then integrity demands that we pursue holiness we need to take our sins seriously and do our part so that god can do his part what only he can do which is to sanctify us to actually transform us and then as we are being transformed that through us that others around us will be transformed as well and so like the early church we need to be vigilant against anything external internal that threatens the unity the love and the holiness of the church which is ultimately created by the spirit so if we allow materialism if we allow the pursuits of of greed to to infiltrate the church and then we're we're quenching the spirit in, in the language of the new testament of course then the question we ask about this passage is gosh why was why wasn't God more graceful? And certainly I don't think a, a short answer will, will, will satisfy. Um, and I think it's something you can grab a cup of coffee and, and sort of ponder and think through. But remember, Ananias and Sapphira, they lacked integrity, which ultimately would have shipwrecked the church. And this is the very beginning, the, the birthing of the church. And so it seems it seems appropriate that God took extreme measures to ensure that his bride would have integrity. Now, followers of jesus we must model integrity or wholeness discipleship ultimately as we define it and understand it means to be with jesus to become like him and to do what he did or to more to the point do what he would do if he were you or me because ultimately he is the most whole or integrated person who ever lived you see that unity you don't see any dissonance within him so then how do we do this how do we become people who live into wholeness Uh, as we mentioned earlier several coping strategies like denial and avoidance compartmentalization but there is one other response you can have to cognitive dissonance and that is to actually change to change behavior or to change thoughts or beliefs or even decisions but then the million dollar question is how how do we actually change now most places you look in the world they'll simply say to try harder to look within for morality in fact even one article I found said that yoga is is the answer, right? Or personal, even personal reflection, lots of different ways that, that they would subscribe to that. But yoga may have some medical or some physical benefits and maybe some mental benefits. And, you know, yoga pants may be comfortable, but they're not going to be our official uniform. You have to remember the words of the prophet Jeremiah. He said that the heart is deceitful above all beyond cure. It's desperately wicked. And as mentioned earlier, Romans 7, the Apostle Paul makes a pretty strong case against trying harder. But thankfully, in the following chapter, Romans 8, Paul explains that Jesus does give us a better way, a, a true way that we can actually change. And so this is Romans 8. I'm going to read the message, uh, the translation here. This is a paraphrase translation. It says in Romans 8, 1, With the arrival of Jesus, the Messiah, the f- that fateful dilemma is resolved. Those who enter into Christ being here for us no longer have to live under a continuous low-lying black cloud. A new power is in operation. The spirit of life in Christ, like a strong wind, has magnificently cleared the air, freeing you from a faded lifetime of brutal tyranny at the hands of sin and death. God went for the jugular when he sent his own son. He didn't deal with the problem as something remote and unimportant. In his son, Jesus, he personally took on the human condition, entered the disordered mess of struggling humanity in order to set it right once and for all. The law code, weakened as it was always by fractured human nature, could never have done that. The law always ended up being used as a band-aid on sin instead of a deep healing of it. And now what the law code asked for but we couldn't deliver as accomplished as we, instead of redoubling our own efforts, simply embrace what the spirit is doing in us. Those who think they can do it on their own end up obsessed with measuring their own moral muscle but never get around to exercising it in real life those who trust God's action in them find that God's Spirit is in them living and breathing God obsession with self in these matters is a dead-end attention to God leads us out into the open into a spacious free life focusing on the self is the opposite of focusing on God anyone completely absorbed in self ignores God ends up thinking more about self than God that person ignores who God is and what he is doing and God isn't pleased at being ignored But if God himself has taken up residence in your life, you can hardly be thinking more of yourself than of him. Anyone, of course, who has not welcomed this invisible but clearly present God, the Spirit of Christ, won't know what we're talking about. But for you who welcome him, in whom he dwells, even though you still experience all the limitations of sin, you yourself experience life on God's terms. It stands to reason, doesn't it, that if the alive and present God who raised Jesus from the dead moves into your life, he'll do the same thing in you that he did in Jesus, bring you alive to himself. When God lives and breathes in you, and he does, as surely as he did in Jesus, you are delivered from that dead life. With his spirit living in you, your body will be as alive as Christ's. Amen. You see, through Jesus' life, his death, and his resurrection, we have both the power to break free from our duplicitous nature and a model on how to live into lives of wholeness through the power of the spirit of God which dwells in us. So, just some real quick practical ideas on how we can start moving forward as we grow in integrity. One, we need space. We need to allow for there to be space in our life. Uh, First, space with God. We need to be connected. If He ultimately is the one who can break us free from our duplicitous nature, then we need to be connected to Him. And some great practices of like silence and solitude and scripture reading, uh, times of, of meditative prayer are great ways to be connected with God. But we also need space for ourselves. Right? I, I don't know about you, but the faster that I move, the more compartmentalized and fractured I feel, the less whole that I feel. And so we need space for ourselves to be centered and to understand what's happening in our lives and have to think and to become more self-aware. The second uh, thing we can work on is uh, or embrace is suffering. If we want to grow, growing requires change and change often is painful. Discipleship is hard work. It's not that we have to do more and and just try harder, but there's going to be things God's going to invite us into and ask us to give up or to do that will be difficult and painful that may put us in a position where we will suffer for ourselves, for the sake of others. And the third thing uh, to grow in integrity is we should look for safe people or another way of saying community, right? We need people in our lives who love me enough to tell me the truth and to hold me accountable. And you need the same thing. And I look, and we don't need people in our lives with agenda. I'm not looking to surround myself with people who are trying to fix or save me, but people who are rather interested in, in truly loving me. And then I want people in my life that I can do the same thing for, to truly love and uh, love them enough to, to and love, tell them truth, and to lovingly hold them accountable. We need that. And that's why one of the core uh, rhythms of life in Sonoma, Sonoma Collective is to be in a community a group of about 10 or 15 people that meet every week and share a meal together every week and open up scriptures together and pray together, that go out and have fun together, uh, and that serve our city together. It's through living out our life of following Jesus that we'll start to see that transformation happen. Um, I love this uh, story on community. Uh, it comes from the basketball world, sport world. Uh, Duke, Former Duke basketball coach Mike Krzyzewski, um, he once was talking about picking the U.S. men's Olympic basketball team in 2008. A team that went on to um to win the gold so he he made the decision he wanted to visit candidates at their homes because he figured that the way they treated their family was how they would treat their teammates you see character was the number one criteria for him in building that team and even though in the previous olympics they had fallen short this team went on to eventually win the gold medal so uh, as with all of our teachings we always want to tie a practice or two to this and We've mentioned one of those, but um, uh, that would be community, right? We need to be in community. If you're not in community, you find information on our website how to do that, how to become uh, part of one of our regular weekly uh, communities that meet. But another practice is a daily examine. This come to comes to us from uh, Ignatian spirituality, and it's the practice of looking back. At the end of the day, uh, not just a reflection, but it's a reflection with the Spirit of God, where we invite God's Spirit to highlight, to show us what He was doing, His activity, His presence in our day. By doing so, we start to get a a greater sense. We grow in our awareness of what God's doing in our life. And as we look back, and the more we look back, we start to recognize the patterns, and the way that God speaks to us and moves in our life. And the more we look back, the better we get at identifying in the moment. But through reflection, we become better in, in in the moment awareness. We start to sense God's presence as it's actually happening. And we can get involved and get in line with the things that he's doing. And so daily examine and community are great ways for us to move forward as we want to grow in integrity. Uh, Because we do believe that it's in God's action, ultimately, the living and breathing God that's in us, that if we focus on him, that ultimately he will do what only he can do. That if we welcome him and we invite him in, that he will, in fact, move us into wholeness and lead us into that open and spacious and free life.